Haskell's Account of the Battle of Gettysburg, by Frank Aretas Haskell. The Great Battle of Gettysburg is now an event of the past. The composition and strength of the armies, their leaders, the strategy, the tactics, the result, of that field are today by the side of those of Waterloo, matters of history. A few days ago these things were otherwise. This great event did not so cast its shadow before, as to moderate the hot sunshine that streamed upon our preceding march, or to relieve our minds of all apprehension of the result of the second great rebel invasion of the soil north of the Potomac. No, not many days since, at times, we were filled with fears and forebodings. The people of the country, I suppose, shared the anxieties of the army, somewhat in common with us, but they could not have felt them as keenly as we did. We were upon the immediate theater of events, as they occurred from day to day, and were of them. We were the army whose province it should be to meet this invasion and repel it, on us was the immediate responsibility for results, most momentous for good or ill, as yet in the future. And so in addition to the solicitude of all good patriots, we felt that our own honor as men and as an army, as well as the safety of the capital and the country, were at stake. And what if that invasion should be successful, and in the coming battle, the army of the Potomac should be overpowered? Would it not be? When our army was much larger than at present, had rested all winter, and, nearly perfect in all its departments and arrangements, was the most splendid army this continent ever saw, only a part of the rebel force, which it now had to contend with, had defeated it, its leader, rather, at Chancellorsville. Now the rebel had his whole force assembled, he was flushed with recent victory, was arrogant in his career of unopposed invasion, at a favorable season of the year. His daring plans, made by no unskilled head, to transfer the war from his own to his enemy's ground, were being successful. He had gone a day's march from his front before Hooker moved, or was aware of his departure. Then, I believe, the army in general, both officers and men, had no confidence in Hooker, in either his honesty or ability. Did they not charge him, personally, with the defeat at Chancellorsville? Were they not still burning with indignation against him for that disgrace? And now, again under his leadership, they were marching against the enemy. And they knew of nothing, short of the providence of God, that could, or would, remove him. For many reasons, during the marches prior to the battle, we were anxious, and at times heavy at heart. But the Army of the Potomac was no band of schoolgirls. They were not the men likely to be crushed or utterly discouraged by any new circumstances in which they might find themselves placed. They had lost some battles, they had gained some. They knew what defeat was, and what was victory. But here is the greatest praise that I can bestow upon them, or upon any army, with the elation of victory, or the depression of defeat, amidst the hardest toils of the campaign, under unwelcome leadership, at all times, and under all circumstances, they were a reliable army still. The army of the Potomac would do as it was told, always. Well clothed, and well fed, there never could be any ground for complaint on these heads, but a mighty work was before them. Onward they moved, night and day were blended, over many a weary mile, through dust, and through mud, in the broiling sunshine, in the flooding rain, over steeps, through defile, across rivers, over last year's battlefields, 
where the skeletons of our dead brethren, by hundreds, lay bare and bleaching, weary, without sleep for days, tormented with the newspapers, and their rumors, that the enemy was in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, in all places where he was not, yet these men could still be relied upon, I believe, when the day of conflict should come. Haik Olim Memonis Jovabit. We did not then know this. I mention them now, that you may see that in those times we had several matters to think about, and to do, that were not as pleasant as sleeping upon a bank of violets in the shade. In moving from near Falmouth, Virginia, the army was formed in several columns, and took several roads. The second corps, the rear of the whole, was the last to move, and left Falmouth at daybreak, on the 15th of June, and pursued its march through Acquia, Dumfries, Wolf Run Shoals, Centerville, Gainesville, Thoroughfare Gap, this last we left on the 25th, marching back to Haymarket, where we had a skirmish with the cavalry and horse artillery of the enemy, Gum Spring, crossing the Potomac at Edwards Ferry, thence through Poolsville, Frederick, Liberty, and Uniontown. We marched from near Frederick to Uniontown, a distance of 32 miles, from 8 o'clock a.m. to 9 p.m., on the 28th, and I think this is the longest march, accomplished in so short a time, by a corps during the war. On the 28th, while we were near this latter place, we breathed a full breath of joy, and of hope. The providence of God had been with us, we ought not to have doubted it, General Meade commanded the Army of the Potomac. Not a favorable time, one would be apt to suppose, to change the general of a large army, on the eve of battle, the result of which might be to destroy the government and country. But it should have been done long before. At all events, any change could not have been for the worse, and the administration, therefore, hazarded little, in making it now. From this moment my own mind was easy concerning results. I now felt that we had a clear-headed, honest soldier, to command the army, who would do his best always, that there would be no repetition of Chancellorsville. Meade was not as much known in the army as many of the other corps commanders, but the officers who knew, all thought highly of him, a man of great modesty, with none of those qualities which are noisy and assuming, and hankering for cheap newspaper fame, not all of the gallant sickle stamp. I happened to know much of General Meade, he and General Gibbon had always been very intimate, and I had seen much of him, I think my own notions concerning General Meade at this time, were shared quite generally by the army, at all events, all who knew him shared them. By this time, by reports that were not mere rumors, we began to hear frequently of the enemy, and of his proximity. His cavalry was all about us, making little raids there and here, capturing now and then a few of our wagons, and stealing a good many horses, but doing us really the least amount possible of harm, for we were not by these means impeded at all, and his cavalry gave no information at all to Lee, that he could rely upon, of the movements of the Army of the Potomac. The infantry of the enemy was at this time in the neighborhood of Hagerstown, Chambersburg, and some had been at Gettysburg, possibly were there now. Gettysburg was a point of strategic importance, a great many roads, some ten or twelve at least concentrating there, so the army could easily converge to, or, should a further march be necessary, diverge from this point. General Meade, therefore, resolved to try to seize Gettysburg, and accordingly gave the necessary orders for the concentration of his different columns there. Under the new auspices the army brightened, 
and moved on with a more elastic step towards the yet undefined field of conflict. The First Corps, General Reynolds, already having the advance, was ordered to push forward rapidly, and take and hold the town, if he could. The rest of the army would assemble to his support. Buford's cavalry cooperated with this corps, and on the morning of the 1st of July found the enemy near Gettysburg and to the west, and promptly engaged him. The 1st Corps having bivouacked the night before, south of the town, came up rapidly to Buford's support, and immediately a sharp battle was opened with the advance of the enemy. The 1st Division, General Wadsworth, was the first of the infantry to become engaged, but the other two, commanded respectively by Generals Robinson and Doubleday, were close at hand, and forming the line of battle to the west and northwest of the town, at a mean distance of about a mile away, the battle continued for some hours, with various success, which was on the whole with us until near noon. At this time a lull occurred, which was occupied, by both sides, in supervising and re-establishing the hastily formed lines of the morning. New divisions of the enemy were constantly arriving and taking up positions, for this purpose marching in upon the various roads that terminate at the town, from the west and north. The position of the First Corps was then becoming perilous in the extreme, but it was improved a little before noon by the arrival upon the field of two divisions of the Eleventh Corps, General Howard, these divisions commanded respectively by Generals Schurz and Barlow, who by order posted their commands to the right of the First Corps, with their right retired, forming an angle with the line of the First Corps. Between three and four o'clock in the afternoon the enemy, now in overwhelming force, resumed the battle, with spirit. The portion of the Eleventh Corps making but feeble opposition to the advancing enemy, soon began to fall back. Back in disorganized masses they fled into the town, hotly pursued, and in lanes, in barns, in yards and cellars, throwing away their arms, they sought to hide like rabbits, and were there captured, unresisting, by hundreds. The First Corps, deprived of this support, if support it could be called, outflanked upon either hand, and engaged in front, was compelled to yield the field. Making its last stand upon what is called Seminary Ridge, not far from the town, it fell back in considerable confusion, through the southwest part of the town, making brave resistance, however, but with considerable loss. The enemy did not see fit to follow, or to attempt to, further than the town, and so the fight of the 1st of July closed here. I suppose our losses during the day would exceed 4,000, of whom a large number were prisoners. Such usually is the kind of loss sustained by the 11th Corps. You will remember that the old Iron Brigade is in the 1st Corps, and consequently shared this fight, and I hear their conduct praised on all hands. In the 2nd Wisconsin, Colonel Fairchild lost his left arm, Lieutenant Colonel Stevens was mortally wounded, and Major Mansfield was wounded, Lieutenant Colonel Callis, of the 7th Wisconsin, and Lieutenant Colonel Dudley, of the 19th Indiana were badly, dangerously, wounded, the latter by the loss of his right leg above the knee. I saw, John Burns, the only citizen of Gettysburg who fought in the battle, and I asked him what troops he fought with. He said, oh, I pitched in with them Wisconsin fellers. I asked what sort of men they were, and he answered, they fit terribly. The rebels couldn't make anything of them fellers. And so the brave compliment the brave. 
This man was touched by three bullets from the enemy, but not seriously wounded. But the loss of the enemy today was severe also, probably in killed and wounded, as heavy as our own, but not so great in prisoners. Of these latter, the Iron Brigade captured almost an entire Mississippi Brigade, however. Of the events so far, of the 1st of July, I do not speak from personal knowledge. I shall now tell my introduction to these events. At 11 o'clock a.m., on that day, the Second Corps was halted at Taneytown, which is 13 miles from Gettysburg, south, and there awaiting orders, the men were allowed to make coffee and rest. At between 1 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a message was brought to General Gibbon, requiring his immediate presence at the headquarters of General Hancock, who commanded the Corps. I went with General Gibbon, and we rode at a rapid gallop, to General Hancock. At General Hancock's headquarters the following was learned, the First Corps had met the enemy at Gettysburg, and had possession of the town. General Reynolds was badly, it was feared mortally, wounded, the fight of the First Corps still continued. By General Meade's order, General Hancock was to hurry forward and take command upon the field, of all troops there, or which should arrive there. The Eleventh Corps was near Gettysburg and the messenger who told of the fight left there, and the Third Corps was marching up, by order, on the Emmitsburg Road, General Gibbon, he was not the ranking officer of the Second Corps after Hancock, was ordered to assume the command of the Second Corps. All this was sudden, and for that reason, at least, exciting, but there were other elements in this information, that aroused our profoundest interest. The great battle that we had so anxiously looked for during so many days, had at length opened, and it was a relief, in some sense, to have these accidents of time and place established. What would be the result? Might not the enemy fall upon and destroy the First Corps before succor could arrive? General Hancock, with his personal staff, at about 2 o'clock p.m., galloped off towards Gettysburg, General Gibbon took his place in command of the Corps, appointing me his acting assistant adjutant general. The Second Corps took arms, at once, and moved rapidly towards the field. It was not long before we began to hear the dull booming of the guns, and as we advanced, from many an eminence or opening among the trees, we could look out upon the white battery smoke, puffing up from the distant field of blood, and drifting up to the clouds. At these sights and sounds, the men looked more serious than before and were more silent, but they marched faster, and straggled less. At about five o'clock p.m., as we were riding along at the head of the column, we met an ambulance, accompanied by two or three mounted officers, we knew them to be staff officers of General Reynolds, their faces told plainly enough what load the vehicle carried, it was the dead body of General Reynolds. Very early in the action, while seeing personally to the formation of his lines under fire, he was shot through the head by a musket or rifle bullet, and killed almost instantly. His death at this time affected us much, for he was one of the soldier generals of the army, a man whose soul was in his country's work, which he did with a soldier's high honor and fidelity. I remember seeing him often at the First Battle of Fredericksburg, he then commanded the First Corps, and while Meade's and Gibbon's divisions were assaulting the enemy's works, he was the very beau ideal of the gallant general. Mounted upon a superb black horse, with his head thrown back and his great black eyes flashing fire, he was everywhere upon the field, seeing all things and giving commands in person.
He died as many a friend, and many a foe, to the country, have died in this war. Just as the dusk of evening fell, from General Meade, the Second Corps had orders to halt, where the head of the column then was, and to go into position for the night. The Second Division, Gibbons, was accordingly put in position, upon the left of the Taney Town Road, its left near the southeastern base of Round Top, of which Mountain Moranon, and the right near the road, the Third Division was posted upon the right of the road, abreast of the Second, and the First Division in the rear of these two, all facing towards Gettysburg. Arms were stacked, and the men lay down to sleep, alas. Many of them their last, but the great final sleep upon the earth. 